program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Which is a campaigning organisation for free speech and it's also celebrating its 40th anniversary this year, so we're very honoured to be part of that. Um, so without saying anything else, I'll hand over to Joe. The whole proceedings are now in Joe's hands. Thank you very um, much. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm going to try and do without the microphones because they're already showing signs of, of rebellion. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here tonight, and I'd particularly like to thank UCL and, and congratulate them on their timing because they couldn't have picked a better week, this being the anniversary of the uprising in Egypt almost to the day. And we have two writers with us who you will know um, as being not just exceptionally gifted novelists, but also acutely brilliant observers and commentators who particularly over the past year have been writing and speaking um, in the media, uh, giving their responses and, and, and their observations on the extraordinary events of the past year, which are still continuing. On my left, I'm delighted to welcome Hisham Matar. Hisham was born in 1970 in New York, but he spent most of his early childhood in Libya until his family was forced to flee Gaddafi and settled in Egypt. His first novel, In the Country of Men, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and has won many prizes, including the Commonwealth First Book Award for Europe and South Asia. His latest novel, Anatomy of a Disappearance, was published this year, and he lives in London. On my right, Abdul Qadir Ben Ali is a leading, award-winning Dutch-Moroccan writer, born in Morocco. His family moved to the Netherlands when he was a small child. A celebrity at home, he should be much better known um, than he is in this country. Um, only one of his many novels, um, Wedding by the Sea, has been translated, and I hope many more of them will be translated. He's a prolific journalist, playwright, and has written non-fiction as well, and his first novel was published when he was just 21. Now, the idea for tonight's discussion came from Abu Qadr, um, inspired by um, the events of the past year, and the question he posed was, what should the response of the artist be to, uh, to revolutionary upheavals such as the Arab Spring? And so I wanted to ask you first, whether, whether the response, whether the literary response to this kind of event, whether it has to be an epic response, does it, is the expectation... That, um, that the work that will sum up something like the Arab Spring will be a work on the scale of war and peace or the scale of Vasily Grossman's life and fate? Is that what it has to be? Uh, well, I, uh, uh, first of all, I want, to like you, uh, I want to thank UCL and the Faculty of Dutch for having me over as a writer in residence. Uh, it has been two wonderful weeks uh, engaging, engaging with, uh, with, with, with English, British, who, who learn and, and already speak Dutch and uh, engaging with them in, on various topics of uh, what, what it means to be citizen, what it means to learn a foreign language, what, what does it do to your identity, those kind of questions that uh, when I grew up in the Netherlands uh, seemed rather, uh, it seemed rather strange to have a, a, a multiple identity or to talk about it or to feel estrangement. And nowadays, with, with, with everything happening in the world, it becomes more and more normal to have these multiple ideas or multiple identities. And uh, I find it quite extraordinary that, that, that in, my, in my life already, I, I, I feel that I'm living through two, two or three different kinds of, uh, of, uh, of, of stages. 
and it's very interesting to 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 start this discussion with uh, on the other side of the of the of the of the North Sea about what does it mean, uh, especially because so much of my reading and 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 uh, and and uh, literary reading is influenced by. Uh, the so-called Empire Strikes Back literature, uh, 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 writers like Hanif Qureshi, uh, but also uh, something like Samuel Rushdie's Midnight's novel uh, was for me the first novel that 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 that, that spoke to me as a, as an outsider in society. It spoke to me as a, as 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 somebody living in the Netherlands, growing up with a double identity, double background, and trying to make the best of it. And then suddenly I found out this epic novel. About a young man born at tw twelve midnight uh, on, on the on the uh, start of of, uh, of the independence of two countries that you have this 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 hero narrator who makes actually a story out of his being uh, uh, more than just one and uh, so this inspired me to actually to write actually my first novel came out of out of that that, that reading of that book and this brings me to the, to your question Joe uh, while we came here tonight. Uh, uh, well, I think yes. I think there should be, or there can be, some writing on 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 what is happening now. I don't know if you can call it the great uh, Arab Spring novel. Uh, I hope not. It sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think already um, uh, you can see that 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 the response on the Arab Spring or the response on what's going on in in Arab politics at this moment is very much artistically. Uh, 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 pronounced. It's already very artistically. In what way? Uh, well, you can see, if, if you look at what's happening at Tahrir Square, the way the people or individuals are responding to what is happening, they do it through poetry, they do it through singing, they do it through uh, also comedy or farce. They respond to, to, the, to, the, to the leaders or to the dictators in a very artistic way. So already there is the groundwork for that novel is being, uh, is being laid down. And uh, secondly, there always has been in the Arab world uh, with the downfall of serious press and with the growth of censorship an idea that, that let's say only artists or poets can tell, can, can, can narrate the forbidden story of a society that only um, through symbolism, uh, through almost a kind of secret hidden language, the poet can, can, can speak truth to power. And I think with what's happening now, this, this will become much stronger. But uh, we all know that War and Peace of Tolstoy was written 50 or 60 years after the, no, no, yeah. the, the, the French Wars. No, 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 I don't know how, how to say it in English, no, Napoleonic Wars. But, but, so, but I don't want to wait 50 years. I, I don't want to wait 50 years. So I, I would ask my... my, my, my my sisters and brothers in the Arab world to hurry up. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you think that, obviously, uh, that you describe, I remember reading you describing at one point this, this horrifying um, time when Gaddafi literally just burned books, just there were, there were bonfires. Mm. And having Libyan writers, not just Libyan writers, but, but, but you know, elsewhere, um, having had to live under censorship for so long, there is, as Abdul Qadir just said, this obviously signs of flowering. Do you, do you think mm. that very quickly writers in, in Libya will somehow be able to write without being under censorship, as it were? Well, it's <laughs> a big question. Um, good evening. It's nice to be here. And it's really nice to be sharing the podium with Abdul Qadir. Um, 
I think, yes, under extraordinary circumstances, such as what Libya went through, where books were burnt and writers were imprisoned, um, literature was damaged in a very big way. But li literature is literature responds, as I think Abdul Qadir was suggesting through the example of war and peace, it responds very slowly. And it responds slowly because it responds through the imagination. And for the imagination to produce work, it needs time. So it's almost like these events uh, have to somehow go into the chamber of the imagination and live there for a while. What's interesting is that it is impossible to predict the sort of work that it would inspire because it could be something incredibly uh, left of field that you didn't expect. You know, um, If we speak very specifically about, uh, about Libyan writing, um, it became incredibly prosaic and, you know, um, uh, abstract under the dictatorship. Um, so you you have you know this is a symbol for that. You need a code book in order to translate <laughs> the the story. You know, um, some of them were good, um, but most of them were not very good. And um, but that's true about all writing. I think most writing is not very good. But um, but. Um, but that's the nature of it. Anyway, I'm sidetracking. The point is that um, I think now you can see evidence immediately through testimonies, through new publications, that Libyans have this appetite to, to respond directly. To There's this new taste for, for being specific about what has actually happened and documenting it. Um, how will that inspire, you know, future works, it's very difficult to, to predict. But I think, in a way, I am more interested in something else uh, uh, to do with this subject. And uh, it occurred to me when Abdul Qadir and I first had a conversation about this, this event, a possible event, how does, you know, examples of how literature responds to immediate historical moments. And I immediately thought of a book by Ivan Turgenev called On the Eve, which is almost like a book, it's, it's actually, it's a historical novel, but in very close focus. So it's only about five or ten years after the event, the Crimean War and, and the devastation of the Russian army in it, and Turgenev's frustration at uh, his own people. Uh, and the whole country seemed to be gripped between this desire, impatient desire of the radicals to move forward and make, you know, you know, dramatic improvements to human life and the slow-paced reformists that were around the Tsar who were saying, please slow down, let's take it. And that novel was around that moment. Um, and there's a very specific scene uh, that when Abdul Qadir told me about this e e evening that came immediately to mind, which is why I got very excited about your idea. And I'd like to read you very little. I promise I won't go on. I won't read you the whole book. I'll just read you a few passages. So there's uh, this, very quickly, a relationship between friends, two friends. Uh, one is an artist, Shubin, and the, I'm pronouncing, if there's any Russians here, I apologize. <laughs> the name's Orak. And the other friend is Bersenev, who's a philosopher and academic. And the novel opens almost like a, a piece of a, a, a quartet, a musical quartet. It opens with them on the lawn in this hot day, talking. Uh, and one of the things that they, they, they say is that um, um, Bersenev responds to Shubin, the artist. He says, stop, stop. 
That's a paradox. If you have no sympathy for beauty, if you do not love beauty wherever you meet it, it will not come to you even in your art. If a beautiful view, if beautiful music does not touch your heart, I mean, if you are not sympathetic, ah, you are a confirmed sympathetic, broke in Schubert, laughing at the new title he had coined while Persenyev sank to thought. No, my dear fellow, Shubin went on. You're a clever person, a philosopher, third graduate of the Moscow University. It's dreadful arguing with you, especially for an ignoramus like me. But I tell you what, besides my art, the only beauty I love is in women, in girls, and even that's recently. He turned over onto his back there lying on the, on, on the grass and clasped his hands behind his head. Ah, a few instants passed by... Uh, passed uh, by in silence the hush of the noonday heat lay upon the drowsy blazing fields then a few lines later he starts to now they're both in love with a woman called Elena and Elena and uh, Shubin loves Elena he thinks Elena loves him back but then suddenly Elena changes direction and starts to fancy Berzenia Berzenev gets very uncomfortable about this, and he does something very bizarre. Huh? He goes off to Elena and tries to sell the virtues of, a comp- of another man, a, a revolutionary, um, who lives away in Moscow, a friend of his. And she gets very interested in this. And this is the point that I think is fascinating about the book, how it addresses this historical moment very obliquely, is that as Berzenev is selling this other friend to Elena Elena says this line she says to liberate one's country she said it is terrible even to utter those words so to put in in juxtaposition Elena's understanding of what to liberate one's country might mean with Bersenev cheating himself out of love seemed to me a very interesting, artistically interesting way to speak about close history. So what I'm trying to say is that how these novels are going to respond to the Arab Spring might not be through what you describe as the epic that you know, you're going to tell the whole history. It might be through these small gestures of how people interact with one another. What I was going to say is that both of you as writers um, focus on the small gestures. You, you write... You, you focus on the, the relationships, the family, to Ill- and within that is politics, is, is, is political argument. And so I'm thinking, in, in your case, famously, in, in both your novels, your depiction of family life is about the impact of the bigger world, the impact of totalitarianism, because I assume it is through the invasion of the private... Um, that it manifests itself. And is, is that something you consciously thought of in, in your writing, or is it it's just how the, you needed to, to, to See, address it? Once the writing is done, you come up with all sorts of explanations to make sense of it. In other words, writing happens in a way that is uh, very, uh, um, very much in the dark. You know, you, you are captured by a detail, something someone said, something you heard, a gesture, a certain light, and you start there, and you don't really know where you're going next. And you take these very tentative steps, at a certain moment the whole thing comes into focus and you think, yes, I understand it. 
And at that moment, all you have to do really is just remain honest to what it is you've understood. So it's a relationship of, of service. You're in service of the work. So, so it's, uh, I have never sat down and thought, um, and I, I don't know any writer who has sat down and thought, uh, I know how to write about this particular issue. I'm going to write about the family. I'm going to do this. But, but later on, uh, you read it and you can see clues. But, but there must be a decision away, don't you think, Abdelkader? If you, I mean, I remember reading the, 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 the there's a, a great Arab critic, Salma al Jayusi, who's a sort of great expert on, on Arabic literature. And um, she said not so long ago, uh, or, or it almost felt like a complaint that, that no Palestinian writer had written the great epic Palestinian novel. And she clearly felt that the Palestinian experience required the colossal res- response, mm-hmm. the kind of mm-hmm. war and peace response. So a, a writer may make, I understand what you're saying, but a, a writer may make that conscious decision that they yeah. want to address history straight on as, as Tolstoy yeah. did, and then they yeah. fall into the trap of being didactic. Yeah. Uh, I totally agree with Hisham, uh, uh, with, uh, and I'm honoured to be to be with him this evening, talking so elo- eloquently on the subject of, of why writers should shun away from history as much as possible and be suspicious, because because we know that that uh, that you cannot really that, that history is always let is always lived uh, uh, after the after the, the events have come down, the ash of the events have come down, and people who were there can barely remember what they did, what happened to them, and they'll get the, the, the broader picture. And that's good, but, but most writers, as Hisham said, they honestly want, just want to tell a story. And we like it when it happens in the dark. We like that because it means there's, there's, a, there's a certain degree of uncertainty to it, there's a certain degree of, of excitement to it, and urgency. It almost is, it's almost as if you're enacting a historical moment. And, and I think every historical moment, when it really happens, it's frightening. I mean, I lived through the, I was in Beirut in 2006, at, not living as a writer in residence, but living there as a human being in residence. And, and, and then the, the, the war started between Hezbollah and Israel. And I, and I chose to, to stay there. And, I, and the reason why was because I, I said to myself, you know, you, you should be kind of, you should be witnessing this because the whole world is screaming, this is historical. And then when you look at it on a, on a day-to-day basis, you just see people trying to get on with their lives and mm. to make the best of it. Mm. They, beca- they don't become different human beings. They, they don't become heroes or great sufferers. Mm. They become, the only thing that happens is that they become more human mm. uh, because this, this existential moment of you know, somebody bombing your town yeah. is quite... The only refuge you have is staying calm, staying normal, and pretend as if history does not exist. I mean, you, you really have to, because if you really think the people that are dying now are dying for something, you become, you become totally... Uh, so so what, the point I want to make is, is that you... That, yes, there's sort of excitement doing good work in writing about events that matter, but I only know that one thing, that I can only write about my... the, the so-called themes I'm, I'm, I'm now... Uh, you know, I like to write about, or I think I can write about them well, which is multiple identities, living, growing up in a postmodern, multicultural society, as Netherlands is uh, dealing with with changes of migration, which mm. is the only one I can write about is, is to forget about, it, just mm. to forget about. Mm. It, to be but, you, but you said you've said to me that 
that 9-11 has changed you <coughs> as a writer? Yeah, but what happened actually is, uh, what, what changed it was that, that, that with 9-11 we got, the, the big story came back. I mean, you know, until 9-11 I mean, we were living out of, you know, postmodernism. There, were, there was no big narrative anymore. And then suddenly CNN and Al Jazeera were bringing the big narrative. So the big narrative was back. And then for me it was like, but, but the big narrative is suffocating me. The big narrative is too big and there's too much narrative. And it, it sounds to me quite um, two-dimensional. I'm looking for nuance, I'm looking for characters, I'm looking for, for, for um, people who, who, who are living through the tension of the so-called clash of civilizations or whatever they call it. And then I, I decided to go to the Middle East and North Africa to talk with people. It was a reaction to the, the big narrative, looking for small narratives. And, and what you hope for is you hope that you win the Nobel Prize with those short narratives and that, and that you know, that, that becomes something that people like to read. And I mean, it's very interesting that you use Turgenev, uh, Ishama, because one of the most interesting stories, short stories ever written are the hunting stories by Turgenev. And those stories are nothing more actually than a, than a, than a, than a hunter on his way through the Russian uh, 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 landscape, walking into people, meeting them, mm. having a drink with them, hunting together, talking to them, and then writing what he saw or what they said to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, when you read them, they, they, in a way they, they put, portray a more vivid, realistic, and, and, and humane portrait of, of, of 19th century mm. Russia mm. Than, than, than the big yeah. uh, um, uh, story could do. I think also the other reason, you know, there's, you know, so some of, besides the reason that you mentioned, which is that, you know, why is it difficult to write about these events in the heat of the moment? To write about them um, in fiction, not to write about them, you know, in, in, in journalism, uh, is because of what you say, that there's a sensory overload, one is distracted by so much. Um, uh, what I mentioned earlier, which is the the nature of the imagination and why I think the imagination needs a lot of time. Uh, but there's a third reason, which is that it is actually very difficult to understand what is taking place. You know, I don't, I don't claim to know what has taken place over the last year. I know some of, hmm. some of what has happened, but a lot of it I, don't, I, I, I still don't know. We call it the, the Arab Spring, we call it the revolution, but, but we are still, we probably would know maybe in 70 years from mm. now. So what happens, because you, I mean, you, both of you, are um, repeatedly called upon to pronounce and interpret and understand. It's terrible, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and help us to understand. Yeah. Yeah. You make sense when I read what you say. So well, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you, but what you do is, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm always distrustful of, of, of a writer uh, bringing forth critical comment on reality because I think most of it is, 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 is just made it up. But you have, but you are but, given a special but, status but as the, a writer. Yeah, but the good thing is of writers, and um, maybe we disagree on this, Hisham, is that sometimes because you're so used to, to, to creating narrative structures and so you're so mm. used to the, mm. to the interplay of of metaphors mm. and looking for ways of understanding reality where people hardly understand it, where people don't dare to go or maybe shun away from it, to look, to look into in the unexpected places to find something. And sometimes a writer comes up with, a, with let's say, a, f a fresh outlook on things. Yeah. But, but then still he's using um, reality to comment on reality. Otherwise, 
but as you said, Hisham, a novel fiction needs imagination. It needs it needs hard work. It needs imagination. It needs something that is very understandable for the for, for the for the writer himself. And that's that's something totally different. But I think that that, a, that some writers, especially the ones who who tried, who said maybe I can use my talent or I can use part of my 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 my, my know-how how to to write about about how to write fiction to also tell to tell the story of people. That's, I mean, what I did in my chronicles from Beirut during the war and, and, and my visits to Cairo and, and, and Sham, Damascus, by looking up people uh, like the, the flaneur of Walter Benjamin. Just, you walk into a street, you, uh, you lose your way in the city and then something happens to you, you meet somebody. And by the chance meeting, by those sm uh, short dialogue or some observation, you, get, you capture a kind of feeling of a city or a moment in time. Mm -hmm. You write it down, and then you send it to a newspaper or a magazine, and, and people like it because it's something that is totally not a confirmation of what they see on television or newspapers. It's something totally different. It's almost literature or, or let's say, storytelling. Mm. Um, in, in your case, Hisham, your writing, when, when your first novel was published and it was a massive success, um, you suddenly had a platform, didn't you, for, for speaking about human rights. Mm. Mm. And this, this tragedy took place in your family where your father was, in horrific circumstances, abducted with, from Cairo, having your family having settled in Cairo, your father was abducted um, with the help of, of the Egyptian secret police, taken off to Libya. I think you've heard from him twice in that mm -hmm. time, but you haven't heard anything since 96, is that right? So you, you had this, you had this um, opportunity um, at, at, with still great risk to your family here in Egypt, um, and I think it stopped you from being able to go back and visit your family for a time um, after you began to speak out. Um, and one question I wanted to ask you is that creative expression and freedom of expression, the freedom to speak out, must be very intimately linked for you since those, those two things happened at the same time? Yes, I wish it was, um, I wish it was um, conceived in, in this way. I mean, if I'm to be honest, it was just very small steps. You know, it was, uh, I felt compelled uh, to speak about these things. I felt like most Libyans felt during those years that I was living in this kind of shadow universe in which none of the facts that affect my life profoundly are being talked about. Um, I felt uh, that it would be indecent of me to uh, not to speak about this subject. Um, but every time I spoke about it, I hated speaking about it. I hated how I felt afterwards. I hated being afraid I hated looking over my shoulder and feeling this gust of wind pass through my home every time I wrote an article, every time I went to a radio station. What was the gust of wind? Just a great sense of, of instability and anxiety because I, uh, at that time, um, it was um, illegal to call the dictator a dictator. It's a crime punishable under Libyan law then by death. 
to call the dictator. And here I am going from one studio to the other, calling him a dictator. <laughs> you know, so it was, and it was very real because uh, friends and members of my family had been uh, either disappeared or killed. It's, you know, it's a very tangible um, sense of trauma. So on some level, it's sort of perverse, actually, I feel, to be going around doing it, you know, it was almost like this itch that you can, so I don't want to put it in this heroic terms, it's actually, to me it was more a kind of perversion uh, because I felt that secretly I admired people who could stay quiet I was angry at them, but I secretly admired them, because I thought um, I wish I could do that, life would be sort of uh, practically very, you know, much much better um, um, for me, in just very selfish, practical terms um, but um, also I think the moment that you start to speak uh, and this is the fantastic thing about language and something that we can take for granted I think um, uh, about language is that as soon as you start to attach certain words to a certain reality that reality starts to alter a little bit you know, very very slowly uh, not, it doesn't take one person to do it it takes a lot of people to do it but it's, yeah. I wonder if in a, in, a, in, a, in a different way for you um, in the way that you explore your family's background and, and, and the, the, the whole experience of coming, in, coming into to the Netherlands from, from Morocco, whether you are saying unsayable things perhaps to your, for your family. Yeah, um, yeah my, well, my books are about my family and I, I because nobody in society does it, I, I investigate them. And uh, it's quite awkward because when I was 19, I started writing Wedding by the Sea. And, it's, and, and every day I would go to high school, I was in high school, kind of college, and I would come back home from college and then work on my novel, Wedding by the Sea, which, which is about my family and the downfall of that family in a wedding by the sea. And uh, <laughs> I would write about my memories I had of my father talking with my mother and things that, of which I knew that if, if if they, ha if they had known that I was writing about that, they would definitely kick me out of the house. And, uh, and, and also take the computer and throw it on a, uh, at the garbage. And, but it, it changed me profoundly because I had to get rid of this feeling of, of, of shame for telling it because I got very excited telling those stories. As Isham said, I also felt like while writing those stories, very directly, real, realistically, they anyway became very imaginative. I mean, other character traits started to, to flow in with those people would, <coughs> that I would call mom and dad. And then, after writing two or three pages and finishing a chapter on them and being sometimes laughing out loud behind the computer or being a little bit sad, because I also thought by writing this down, it ha it's going to become a book, and by doing that, it has, it, it has a kind of truth. It's fixed in time and place. That made me sad because until then, nobody in my family ever had read a book or written a book. I always, I always say, in my family, we had two books, a telephone book and the Quran. <laughs> and it stayed like that. If it, so I would, and then I would finish the chapter three of my parents, and then my mother would call for dinner, or, you know, what are you doing there, writing, bed for your eyes? And I would come up, 
and I would feel like un, I would feel like I had I had turned into an anthropologist. 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 I, I would sit with my, my my parents, and the first half hour of conversation, I was thinking, I'm 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 now observing them as if they're characters in a novel. <laughs> they, oh my God, the things I just wrote down—they're saying it now. <laughs> And what will he do next? Yes, he will tell me to change the channel on television. I just wrote it down in, in chapter four. And those kind of things happen all the time. And I felt very, very sad, but also felt like um, a vengeance, take, take revenge. a revenge, because uh, I always was made sure by my, especially by, by some people in the family, that, that nothing useful would come out of me. So what's the response? You're now famous, and are they proud? Are they embarrassed by They, st- they still think nothing useful will come out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they're right, but but no, they're not. They're proud because they're, they're proud. Because they're, uh, my father never showed his pride. Uh, they, they don't, fathers don't show their pride in that way in my family. But he was. He, he seemed quite happy to see me buy a car. My mom and I bought a car three years ago. I, I, I drove the car to the house, and he's a butcher. And, 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 and he said, "So you bought a car?" And I said, "Yes." Yeah. Well, then, then let me get off my my sofa and see it. And he went outside, and it was a Swedish car. It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he was he was and then he he said, "Well, um, give me a ride in the car." And then he asked me about how did you. Pay? How did you pay for it? And I said, well, you know, all those things I've been doing all those years, scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. <laughs> ah, and then he, but he could barely... He, it, took him a, it took him some time to make the connection between writing and the car. <laughs> By that time, I was already home. Yeah. Do, your, do your family identify themselves in your books at all, do you think? It's, no, well... No, they don't. My immediate family doesn't, but my extended family has other ideas. Yeah. I think the moment that you realize that you're a writer is, is when you realize that being a novelist is a misfortune for any family. Yes. To, ha- to, ha- yeah. to have a novelist. Because not that they think... In my family, are very good about it. They don't think that these people are them. And they're readers. They like books. They engage with these books. So, um, But... They know that other people might think that, the, 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 that these people are them, and th- that's where the the, the 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 misfortune of having a novelist in the family yeah. is. But also, what uh, Abdul Qadir just described, I found very moving actually, because that is also the moment when you're young and you're writing, and you start suddenly to figure out that all of your life, since you were very little and you didn't know why you did it, is you always observed and you listened and you looked around and you felt kind of a secret delight in capturing and collecting all of this information and not entirely sure why you're doing it. And then suddenly you start writing and you think, oh, suddenly this old thing that I used to do that I thought was perverse has a purpose in life. It's a useful quality to have. And that moment, as sweet as it as it is, the moment that you're sitting around having dinner with your family and listening to them, and you said you said the word sad, you felt sad that there's you know that you're listening to them, but at the same moment you're realizing the truth that is the ultimate truth for everybody, which is that we're ultimately alone, 
that we are very close to these people, but we are very alone because we are, you know, distancing ourselves from them, particularly mm -hmm. as a writer when you're young and you're looking and recording information. This, this, this is a great time to be a, an Arab writer or, or, or a writer with an Arab identity because it, 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 yes, it is. <laughs> Don't you? Haven't you realised? <laughs> because everybody, every novelist, must long to be read and long to be perceived in some way relevant, whether that's relevant in, in, in terms of um, what people take from their books. But the point is people are interested in Arab culture, uh, Arab fiction, in a way that... that, that you, you, I think you mean in, 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 in the West or in the Arab world? I'm talking about the West. I'm talking uh, about the, the interest of the but West. But I, I think there's something, it's, it, it's an important distinction, which is, you, and you've used the word successful to, to, to you know, um, to, uh, to describe Abdul Qadir, to describe me. Uh, and now this seems to be a sort of, it seems to me, um, there are so many things connected to writing that are to do with the market yeah. and to do with getting readers, selling your books. They're all very tremendously important things because you need to continue writing and earning a living, sure. But on some level, that actually means almost nothing when you are writing because... Um, so, is it a good time to be an Arabic writer from that point of view, not from the market point of view, but from the, the real, what I would call the real sort of existential state of a writer? Is this a good time to be an Arabic writer? I am not sure. It might actually be a much better time to be an American writer or a Russian writer. Mm. Russia is very interesting. A lot has happened 30 years ago that you could write about. Um, being an Arabic writer, so much is happening now, which is hugely distracting. I don't know any Arabic writer, all my friends that I know, the Egyptian writers, the Libyan writers, the Syrian, Syrian writers, certainly, who I write, you know, email uh, and speak to on a regular basis. I don't know any of them who is writing a novel. Mm. It's a terrible time, I think, on that level to be an Arabic writer. But I mean, as you said, it's about, it is so much about the market. It is... Yeah. It is extremely competitive. It is difficult to get published. It is, you know, I mean, we see how few no. books get reviewed that are published, no. and it's it's so much a matter of chance or how you've been marketed. So, from a very cynical point of view, mm. it's a good time. I mean, uh, let's say the Arab uh, War and Peace would have been written now. It would, co it would come out in the Arab world, let's say around December. I think it would take uh, a Western publishing house another 30 years. To have it translated and, and, and published in the Western world, because there there is a tendency to, to to say, okay, things are happening in the Arab world, revolutionary. They concern also us, the ones who are living at the other side of the Mediterranean. It will have huge consequences for all kind of things, political relationships, migration. But even before the Arab Spring, there were so many Arab writers writing books about things that were coming, about their societies. They're barely known in, 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 the, in the market, in the marketplace. And uh, what I found out when I visit Syria, for, Syria or Beirut or for the first time is, is getting to know these writers and the things they had, they had written. And, yeah. and I felt ashamed or a little bit strange that I didn't ha I'd never heard about them. Mm -hmm. And they were very good books, very good books. Well, it is another issue that, you know, translation is a big issue, that very, very little is, you know, tiny, tiny percentage of... You know what is published in this country is, is is you know translated. It's a big problem in terms yes. of introducing new yeah. writers. Yeah. 
I actually want to take this moment now to ask both of you, each of you, to read mm. some of your writing. Um, Abdul Qadir, let's start. <coughs> okay. How, how, how long? Five minutes. Yeah. Okay, that's good. So this, this I will. Um, it's a short piece about cleaning late about this Moroccan Dutch guy who's me, who works as a who works as who works in an in an office, and he's the only Moroccan guy who works in a in this office on on that that management level. And then um, during lunch, which is which he's taking together with his colleagues, they start talking about the Moroccan cleaning lady who works in the firm too. So it makes two Moroccans working in the firm. Um, they laughed again. The Moroccan cleaning lady, they roared with laughter. I don't know her. She's here nearly every day. Nice lady, always smiles. Not like my Moroccan cleaning lady, who looks so sour, you would think she has just eaten a rotten lemon. Everyone laughed, except him. He resolved to try laughing along a little during these hilarious moments. Even if, even if he didn't get it at first, Perhaps after a couple of attempts, it would come naturally. Surely, if he was ready and willing, he would eventually become able. They all turned out to have Moroccan cleaning ladies and used the occasion to ask him, the only one without a Moroccan cleaning lady, questions about typical characteristics of Moroccan cleaning ladies. They always skip some things, like the dresser, for example. Can you tell us why? Is it a cultural thing? <laughs> he had no explanation. Yet it wouldn't be all that strange if he did have one. One of my cleaning ladies sometimes sends her daughter. Mother is ill. She will tell me. Nice girl and all, but she always wants more money than what I give her mother. She claims to give it all to her mom. Obviously, I don't buy it. Does she think all Dutchmen are gullible or something? I'm afraid to say anything to her. She's so crappy already when I pay her. As if I blame her. It's not like I'm talking advantage of her mother. She gets a great cash-in-hand rate. When he heard these kinds of stories, his brain shut down and his imagination took over. He envisioned a procession of Moroccan cleaning ladies climbing upstairs while his co-workers arrived at the office, opening the doors to their apartments. <coughs> he didn't have a Moroccan cleaning lady. He had his wife who spent her time on the phone with friends, trying to find a solution for his carnal train delays. What do you think I should do? His colleague ended his litany. This was his chance to raise his status, so he offered up an explanation, pulled and tiny out of thin air. Their expressions brightened as though he had given them the access code to a sweet well of secrets. The conversation returned to the Moroccan cleaning lady. For some reason, they were fascinated with her. She wears a headscarf. They do that for sanitary, sanitary reasons. Oppression, someone chimed in. Their choice, as long as she keeps cleaning. As long as she keeps smiling, that sour look of hers ruins everything. I want nothing but laughter in my house. I think the headscarves look pretty. They're pickable. Who can you say, how can you say that? Her Dutch is good. Silence fell. Their eyes, their eyes turned to him in the certainty that, that he would have something to contribute. Nothing happened. The stick was passed to the next guy. Overqualified, 
Society won't give her a chance. We are, we are not giving her a chance. She's definitely being exploited and not just that, she has, ex she has accepted it. It's her only chance. She looks happier than some of the people at the table here. All this stupid gibberish. Happiness is not a physical state. All happiness is unhappiness in disguise. All unhappiness is unhappiness in a headscarf. <laughs> Laughter. A sudden silence seemed to offer him the opportunity to speak, but he remained silent. Great. I know something none of you know. Her son is in prison. How did you find it out? She told me so. What is he doing in prison? Run of bad luck. This job is like prison. By the time they looked up, he had gotten up from the table. There was work to be done. That afternoon, he saw her for the first time. He had decided to stay late and wait for her so he could once and for all end the confusion. He had braced himself for her arrival, but she was no different from most cleaning ladies he had seen. She didn't look particularly Moroccan either. Maybe, maybe he ought to introduce himself. Seemed appropriate. Before he could anything, she, would, she had left the office again and didn't come back. Her shift was probably over. He decided not to tell his co-workers how he had just missed the Moroccan cleaning lady. It might give them the impression that he was trying to avoid her. And that, and that was the last thing he wanted. She didn't return that evening. A week later, he saw her again. This time, he acted more quickly. He walked towards her. You're the Moroccan cleaning lady. At first, she didn't hear him, as though he spoke a different language. Then she gave in, and her face softened. Yes. My colleagues told me about you a lot. He reached out his hand. She shook it. The hand was soft. He wanted to give her more, but just the hand was a lot. She didn't know him. He didn't know her. He wanted to put an end to this misunderstanding that he intentionally overlooked the Moroccan cleaning lady because he didn't want to meet her. Abruptly, he put his arms around her as, his arms around her as though something had startled him, as if he was looking for her protection. She let him for a moment. Startled by the sudden move, then he felt her starting to resist. He kept squeezing her. Keep at it, he told himself. <laughs> he burrowed his hands into her back. He smelled the scent of cumin, mint, pepper, and cinnamon. Home. Oh, if only I had met you sooner. Please let go, sir, she said. I'm suffocating. She was speaking Moroccan. She shouldn't have done that. It only made him more convinced that their relationship was progressing well. <laughs> Her headscarf came, started to come loose. Tears began to roll down his cheeks. His hands slid down to her bottom. He pushed it tightly against her body. Those exercises he had been doing at the gym were paying off. <laughs> she had nowhere to go. Hold me, please. I beg you. Why he had said that last thing in English, he didn't know. <laughs> the words came out sounding hoarse and lead as though they were his last words on earth. Then he let go because she started, she had started hitting him. <laughs> she found a way out. 
His nose was bleeding. Blood dripped onto her clothing. Why was she hitting him? How dare she? Stupid cow. What have you done to me? She ran out of the office crying. He took a rag from the cleaning cart to stop the bleeding. Smoothed the creases in his clothing. Time to go home. Thank you very much, Hisham. Right, well, I, I'm going to read uh, another particularly funny passage, actually, um, from, uh, from uh, Anatomy of a Disappearance, um, my second novel. Um, and it's, I thought it might be appropriate because it's, a, um, it's the freedom uh, not, not, not to speak, but the freedom not to speak. Um, to choose not to speak. And it's uh, the protagonist, uh, Nuri Al-Alfi, who, uh, in this passage, he's a, um, a young teenager uh, at a boarding school in England, uh, and shortly after, his father had disappeared mysteriously, and he hasn't, been, hasn't told anyone, uh, and not his best friend at school and roommate, um, Alexei, who's uh, German. And somehow the two, the Arab boy and the German boy, feel a kind of <coughs> alliance in the, in the English atmosphere. Some nights, lying in the dark after lights out, I came close to telling Alexei, but I did not know what words to use. I did not know how to name what had taken place, kidnap, abduction, theft. None of them seemed right. And how was I to answer the questions that would surely follow about why and who and how and wasn't there anything I couldn't do? In March, three months after it happened, I had taken a long walk through the hills. Buds wrapped in their velvet caskets clung to the tips of branches. Everything was on the brink of change. For the first time since I arrived at Delswick, the English sun warmed my skin. I had been wrong, I thought. I ought to have told Alexei. I pictured us walking through the grove and up the steep hill. We would sit on the craggy boulder there and look out onto the hills rolling and fading into the distance. We would spot our boarding house, small enough to hide behind a thumb. And this time, we would climb here not for cigarettes and vodka, and not so that he could tell me about his life back in Germany, but to discuss a matter of the utmost importance. I could no longer wait. How ridiculous that I had left it this long, I told myself. The shock and anguish inflicted by the sudden and yet ambiguous loss of my father felt like a weight on my chest. It had never felt heavier. I wanted to roll it off onto the lap of a trusted friend who might help me make sense of it. I walked briskly back. I could not find him anywhere. Then just when I began to wonder if this was not a sign, I found him in the common room watching the news. I sat on the far side tempering my breath. Beside the library, this was the only room where talking was was not encouraged. I waited for him to look my way so that I could gesture to him to follow me. 
I began to take notice of the news item that was holding his attention. A mother had lost a child. He had been playing in the garden. When she looked up from the kitchen sink, he was gone. The cameraman zoomed onto her face as she tried to answer the reporter's questions. It was upsetting to witness such intrusion into another's grief. It was as if the camera took delight in the woman's shame. I wondered what Alexei made of it. How could you lose your son? One boy called out, and he was shushed down. Alexei continued to face the screen. Stupid, he said softly. I was not sure if he meant the woman on the TV or the boy who had just spoken. And because no one turned to him or told him to be quiet, I convinced myself that he meant the boy. But then Alexei jutted his chin out towards the television and got up and left the room. I watched the leather seat of his armchair fill with air. Nothing would be lost, I reasoned, by holding off for a few more days. I remained agitated, uncertain whether to tell him or not, and at the height of my despair I would feel the sweat pool on my chest. One night a storm took hold of the trees outside our dormitory window. I watched them through the glass. The helpless things swung from side to side in the electric light. The mice in the attic above scurried back and forth. The wind moaned and whistled through the window. The rain, which came and went in sheets, was like a thousand fingernails tapping the glass. It's nothing. Go to sleep, Alexei said when he heard my, the floorboards squeak. Next time I woke up, the world was a calm place. The leaves had hardly a breeze to contend with now. In their stillness, they looked exhausted. The trees on the outer perimeter of the grove had either collapsed or, or split into two. Alexei was fast asleep. He had slept through the rest of the storm. Something about that astonished me. What comfort allows such trust in the world? The stillness of that morning seemed to confirm my old instinct not to tell Alexei about my father. I made up my mind. I must keep it private. I could not bear the disquiet of another or worse, far worse, to see him fascinated, entertained by the oddity of what had happened. What is a happy German boy with happy parents to know about this? Thanks very much to both of you. Um, Hisham, I just thinking as you were reading, has, has Anatomy of a Disappearance and your first book, have they been translated into Arabic? Yes, um, the first one very badly, um, um, and so I, ha I changed publishers and translator, and so the new translator started with the second book, so the second book will be out in Arabic. And have you ever, uh, have you ever written in Arabic? When I was very young, yes, I wrote, I, I wrote, in, I wrote uh, uh, very stupid poems, and I wrote very stupid one-act plays and things like that. But really, serious writing uh, was only done in, in, uh, in English. Um, meaning, the time when I committed to writing uh, properly, I had already, um, my English language was already better than my Arabic language. Um, so, yeah, that's... And in, in your case, your, your first language is Berber. Yeah. And again, did, but did you, have you always written in Dutch? Is that yeah, always in Dutch, yeah. Can you explain that? Or is it 
that, is that land you were educated in? Well, I don't, well, it's, it's the country I went to. I went to Netherlands. My father uh, uh, chose to go to the Netherlands. I mean, actually, he ran out of breath after going to Spain, France, Belgium. <laughs> he stopped in Rotterdam. I, I think, I think, you know, the, the, the next harbor would have been Manchester. <laughs> stop there. And, and, and so I was stop. You know, if he had gone to to Frankfurt, uh, got for both. But then had been had been German. <laughs> but I came, I came as a very young kid to Netherlands when I was four. So I saw the genesis of learning a language. I saw it happen with me. I, I, when I went to kindergarten, the first word I learned was to translate the, 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 thing, the yellow thing my mother gave me in my hands to give it a name, a banana. A banana. So I, as it, so I think when you have very, at that age you go to a, 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 new, a new country, a new culture, and, and you start learning the language, you, you, experience, you experience that in a much more vivid way, I think, than an average kid. Mm -hmm. Because in my home we spoke Berber, a totally different language. Mm -hmm. And in kindergarten with the teacher, one day I came in class and we, we changed, I changed, we changed my, my father changed a neighborhood. And, and I was brought to, to, to a second kindergarten, and, and the woman introduced me to the kids with, we have a new kid in the class, his name's Abdel Kader, it's 10 letters. And I, I never thought of my name having 10 letters. And then the kids looked at me with eyes red with jealousy and anger and violence. <laughs> and I thought, I, I think I'm, I'm going, I, will, I will be paying for this in an hour. <laughs> and yes, uh, in, in, during the, the, the break in the sandbox, it, it, there was a this young guy with a shorter name hitting me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you feel you feel you feel that at that when you experience <laughs> that age, you feel this language is not innocent. It's not innocent. It's it's really makes people angry, gives emotion. You better you better watch out what you say. And 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 and, I, and though my parents are they're semi literate. I mean they didn't go to school or anything. My, my father made it made it to a butcher. I mean, how, how he did that is, a, is another, should invite him to talk about that. But how did he, I don't know. But, but I always understood one thing from my, from my Berber background, from my North African background, is that, that words can break, break or make people, families, things. And why? You can imagine, if, if you grow up, you, if you're in a village and there's nobody able to, who can write, who can read, then what you say becomes almost holy, it becomes, you're, you're a tickle. You know, people say this piece of land belongs to that guy and not to you, and five or six people swear an oath on it, then it's there forever. So words really mean something. They carry kind of weight. And I, I was, and and I think this is something that 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 one of the made an impression, influenced me in my vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, conduct with language. Mm. This is actually something that uh, I thought when you asked uh, the question about. Um, is it a good time to be uh, a, an Arabic writer? Um, maybe it's more uh, more interesting to say, apart from what I said before, which is not interesting at all. But what, maybe what's more interesting to say, in connection to what Abdul Qadir just said, is that in general it is actually a very good time to be a writer. I think, in the sense that um, all things to do with just not only access to information 
and books are very cheap. It's very very easy to have reading material. Not for everybody, of course, but for most people, or not most people, but a lot of people. <laughs> and, um, but also, but but also, it's just mobility. You know, the fact that we are all traveling, all the we 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 meet each other in different places, and it's a it's a, an astonishing luxury. It's amazing on that level, um, and that there does seem to be on some level I, um, that I do feel that. I, I do feel that my, my true country is is my desk, but I also do feel that my true tribe is, is, is uh, are writers in the sense that I really avoid them. I know very few writers. I, I don't I don't I don't have many friends. <laughs> but, but but when I do meet when I meet them in the way that you meet your tribe, you go to a festival and they're all there and you exchange um, sympathies and sentiments and it's genuine and, and actually quite uh, important. Uh, in relationship to you know the solitary act of writing, um, so I think in that sense it's uh, an interesting time to be a writer. Yeah. I think it's time to, to give all of you a chance to ask questions. Um, and I think do we have a microphone anywhere? But yeah, great. So if anyone would like to ask a question, nobody wants to ask a question. Well, they need yes, a bit look, of time. Okay, right. Do they need time to? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've got these burning questions. I've got more questions myself. Yes, there's a. I'd like to ask both of you what your thoughts are on using literature to make a political statement. Okay, do you want to ask first? Um, my, my, uh, the question is uh, uh, what, what I think of using literature to make a political statement. You should explain it to me more elaborately to understand what you mean. Well, I mean, you're talking about writing about the revolution, describing it. Yeah. But, I mean, what do you think about using literature to influence it? Yeah. Well, well I, I hope so. I hope so. I hope that people uh, gain a better understanding of reality, which sounds very academic, but for me it's also a political point. You know, it's so understanding things in a political way. Uh, so, 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 if any way books can change something, yes. I, 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 I hope that they will be read in that way too, politically. Um, I, am, uh, I have a hypersensitivity to anybody telling writers what to do or what not to do. And that comes from my own experience because I, um, I come from a country that... Um, I come from more than one country, but the significant country, Libya, that I come from, um, has uh, told us from basically before, you know, the revolution happened the year I was conceived, so that my entire life I didn't know anything else except the Gaddafi regime. And we w it was very specific about what it expected of us. So you knew all the time what to write, what not to write, what books to read, what books not to read. So now there's a very strong and well-intended sentiment, I think, by a lot of people in the Arab world, saying, writers, come on, write about this. Well, you know what? Fuck off. I'm not going to write about it. You know? <laughs> I'm going to, in the sense that literature is by nature rebellious. You know? Not only the writer, forget the writer, but the writing is rebellious. You know? Whenever you want to steer your book one way, it either dies or slaps you, or mm. stops. You know? uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it, in its detail, it's rebellious. Um, and um, and it is, in the words of Mario Vargas Llosa, literature is fire. It's very difficult to control or manage or to employ. And I would argue that when it's employed for either a political or a social project, 
it dies. It doesn't become interesting at all. I can't think of any work written in that way that 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 was interesting. Um, it has to be. It sort of demands a certain level of fidelity to the work that is um, very pure. And maybe maybe that's why writers, on some level, are childlike. We have a certain naivety, I think, on some level, because I think we still we know through our practice, through our daily practice, that absolute fidelity is 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 a prerequisite. So maybe on that level we remain romantic a bit, you know, that we still think that absolute fidelity is, exists in the world. On the subject of absolute fidelity, could you tell us a bit more of having a bad translation done of your work? Well, I think, I, I think uh, uh, translation, I mean, you, it, is, it is possible to end up with a better book. Uh, when it's translated, you know, because, you know, theoretically speaking, because you have two writers at work, so if you have a good writer, a good translator, rather, um, but, um, but God forbid, if you have a bad translator, it, it, um, it, it is, it is upsetting, but, um, but I, I also try not to become too obsessive about it, because on some level, you, you have to remember that the translator is not this machine through which you pass the book, but an artist who is responding uh, with their intellect and their emotion and their psychology and everything that has happened to them, like a reader, you know, um, um, and that you have, to, you have to trust them on some level. So I always find a good translator is a translator that has a very, that doesn't have a, a big ego, you know. I mean, it's like any other human being, a good human being, <laughs> doesn't have a big ego, in the sense that, you, you know, you can engage with them uh, artistically and, and talk about them. That's, that, that's, that's enjoyable. Well, it's, it's good that you, talk, that you ask this question about tra uh, translators because they're very, very important for the, you, you know, for the communication between cultures and, and that, that, that some books uh, get, get to be known in a, in a, in a, in a language. Uh, like in Dutch, we have uh, the, the uh, famous novel by Bulgakov, Master Margarita. The only reason why it's so well read among people who love literature in the Netherlands is because the translation is... is Excellent. It's very, very good. It's very close to the. I mean, if you don't know Russian, you feel it makes you laugh and think and wonder from the first page. There's a work of love going on in the translation. So let us. And when it comes to my personal experiences with translations, I have many because the book has, my first novel was translated to six, 16 languages. One of them is Bengali. I still have to receive the, the copies. But, but sometimes translators are, have a very big ego and then they have the big, a very big ego at the right moment, right place because I've always, I was always waiting or wanting to have my books translated to Arabic. It's going to happen next year, but it never really happened. And then a couple of years ago, I met this at a, at a literary workshop with some Arab translators. I met this Moroccan guy from, from The Hague who said to me, I like your books, something should be translated. And I said, well, you know, pick a book. Then we lost track, and uh, two years ago, he sent me an email saying, Hey, Abdelkader, uh, you remember me? I said, Yes. He said, Well, um, you know, I, I discovered that you, you wrote this book about this uh, Iraqi asylum seeker in the Netherlands who turns out to be part of the Saddam regime and changes identity to survive in, in the, in the, on the, uh, under the Saddam regime, but also under the occupation and in the Netherlands. I said, yes, I remember that. I mean, I wrote that book <laughs> very well, and, uh, and, and thank you for, for you know, retelling the story, but that's the book. I can confirm I wrote it. I'm the author. He said, you know what? I like it so much, and I thought, in me, this is a book 
for the Arab world, I translate it for you in Arabic, into Arabic. This is the attachment. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, then I love the big ego. That, that's really a, an act of, of sometimes enthusiasm is, is, the, is the purest form of intelligence. And that's what happened with, it, with this book. And now, and I sent it right away to Samuel Shimon of Bani Paul magazine, this literary magazine for Arab fiction translation. And he said, well, the translation is a little bit moody, but, uh, you know, you can, we can work on it. And, and, and now this, this, and what I found amazing is this translator. He didn't well subsidy or anything. But the, after getting my approval, he said, and now I'm going to publish your first, to translate immediately your first novel. And so, so it's sometimes very nice to have people like that. And I think most good translating is done by, by these kind of individuals. Yes. Uh, at this moment, I'm going to have to confess some ignorance here. We were, uh, you were talking earlier on about the likelihood of the Arab Spring creating the, the Arab War and Peace later on. I'm very unfamiliar with Arab writing. Are there any Arab writers that you can recommend to me who have maybe described the circumstances which caused the Arab Spring to begin with rather than afterwards? Yeah, plenty. Yeah. Tonight, yeah, well, you know, we, we, but, but, but yet yeah, there have been, you know, it depends on which country you're in and, 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 and which, yeah, but there are many of them, many like I, when you look at the, one of the, one of the authors said that really made understood what, how one, how the Arab society has changed the last 50 years, and how that changed because of outside influence, but also was something that found in the ground, oil, and how he made me show what it did for societies, how people reacted to it, changed, but also not, not changed, because I think that's something very interesting about the Arab world, is, is the Cities of Salt by Abdurrahman uh, uh, Munif. It's a very big book, 500 pages. And it's 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 uh, one of the translated and uh, Munif. Munif, yes, yes. It's a great, great book. And uh, when I read that, I I felt ashamed I hadn't known it before because it's it's uh, world literature for me. And and there, there are many other authors I, I can talk about, like in Morocco, like someone like Mohamed Shukri, mm. who who wrote Hungry Years, who wrote how what it means to come from a from the, from the, from who, who, what it means to, to grow up in poverty and despair in a country that's trying to become independent. What does it mean for you as a human being? What happens to you? Uh, the great, uh, uh, one of the themes in the Arab world is the father-son relationship. Well, Mohammed Shukri was the first one to touch on those taboos, to, to write about that. I think when it comes to longing and, and, and melancholy and, 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 and what it is to be a human being under very, very difficult circumstances, how you, you know, then, then there's no better power than, than Mahmoud Darwish, the, the Palestinian. Uh, there is a, there's a wonderful, wonderful uh, Algerian writer who wrote an incredible book about living in a country that is actually on a police, uh, on a strict uh, uh, emergency rule. How do you call it? Uh, yeah, emergency laws. Emergency laws. And, 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 and he takes that society almost as a template for, for the Arab condition before the revolution. It's Boadam uh, Sansa, the Nigerian writer. And there are many of them that you could read. And uh, this is one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Hisham. I, I was just going to say something about, you know, um, <coughs> it is. Um, 
And, you know, about Arabic literature making it, you know, to the West. Um, I think the the uh, there are several reasons why uh, Arabic writers or Arabic writing isn't as read here as um, as perhaps we would like it to be. Um, one is is to do with here that we don't translate enough here in general in all languages, not just in Arabic. But um, Arabic writing itself has had a lot of problems. We have, uh, without to bore you, I mean, we just had a, a lot of, um, we have a, an incredibly difficult publishing industry that isn't as supportive or as professional as it needs to be. There are some fantastic publishers, but by and large, they're rare. Um, so the editorial engagement with the text is thin. Um, so, um, and, and, and then you have other reasons to do with the, with the fact, something that we forget about the Arab world is that it's actually, many of the Arabic countries are very young countries. They're very ancient countries in some ways, but they're very young societies. If you take Libya, for example, if you were to point to the first university-educated generation, it would be my father's generation. When the Italians left Libya uh, in 43, there was about, depending which historian you read, anything between 4 to 12 people with a high school degree, mm. you know? So it's, uh, it, uh, and that's because of the very unusual kind of uh, fascist um, rule um, under Mussolini, but, but even if you take older Arabic societies like um, Egypt and uh, the Levant, you know, um, where you have universities there for a long time, um, very few graduates, you know? So basically so many, so many reasons have, have, have made things the way they are now. Uh, and so I think, are there some incredibly important, significant works that need to be available at, at the Waterstones down the road? Then definitely yes. Um, um, and just a very sh quick short list. I would uh, suggest uh, reading Nagib Mahfouz because he's one of the few that is translated very well. Um, and uh, another writer that I think a great deal of that, it, that has been translated very well is um, Tayyip Saleh who's a Sudanese writer. And by him, I would read this wonderful novel called Season of Migration to the North. Um, uh, but also other stories. He didn't write a lot, but he wrote very, very well. Um, I would also um, look at a, um, uh, a, a novelist called Ibrahim Ilkuni, K-U-N-I. Um, he's a Libyan writer who, um, and I'm not, you know, <laughs> promoting him because he's a Libyan writer, but he's a very interesting prose stylist. I can't vouch for the translations because I haven't read him in translation. Um, but, you know, that's, I hope, is a good list. Thank you. That sounds like a great list. I think we've got time for um, one more question. No, maybe one more, yeah, after that as well. He's had his hand up for a while. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, three more, if you can make them... Um, Brief, if possible. I was just wondering, for whom do you write? Do you write for to Good the West? Do you write for your own people, for the people of the Arab world? Or yeah. do you write because it's cathartic? That's a very good question. Um, uh, and because it's a very good question, I, I will, I will I'll give you a couple of a, a good answers that aren't my own. Um, uh, um, Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentine writer, his, uh, his response to that was to, uh, to uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting and I'm probably going to make a mistake, but I think it's to, uh, to uh, entertain myself, my friends, and to ease the passage of time. Um, and the other one that I like is um, 
Ernest Hemingway had also a very good answer for it, which was, I write for myself and the woman I love, even if she can't read me. <laughs> so it, and that is a very telling uh, response. Uh, uh, for me, uh, it is not so uh, profound. For me, I, I write ultimately for myself and for the people I love. But, but what I mean by that is I write into love. It, it, for me, writing is an expression of love. It's an expression of praise. Maybe praise is a better word than love, you know. Uh, praise, not in the religious sense, but in the sense of saying something exists, you know, of, of announcing it. Zikr, you know, of actually saying it. It's, it's there. And therefore, uh, by just stating everything, you know, stating the beautiful, but also stating the hideous, stating the hideous, it's kind of an act of praise and an act of love of, for everything, absolutely everything. So you can't write about a criminal or a dictator without being in that moment in love with them on some level. Of course, I'm using that word loosely, but that's what. <laughs> yeah, it's a good answer. I'm going to tell you a secret. Uh, but first of all, one of Well, I also write to pay the mortgage. But I tell you a secret. I, I, uh, a couple of months ago, I, I read this quote by Oran Pamuk, who said, the Turkish writer, I write novels for the people who reject the novels. Mm. And, and, and I felt touched because it's about me. Mm. Uh, I, I said I don't come from a literary background. I wasn't brought up with books, not with the love of books. People like to talk, and, but and then I discovered books, and especially novels. And it, there was something in me, like 99% of me, was there to reject the novel and anything artistic. But 1% innocent and naive wanted to enjoy something, and it turned out to be stories. And I liked what I read. I liked what I what I read, and. But there was always part of me that, no, uh, put it down, go play soccer, uh, have a girlfriend, uh, do something else. And then I would leave. And I was amazed that somebody alone, not with a group, but alone, in silence and solitude, could write something, maybe in 1880 or in written in Tokyo, and communicate through, left, through words some emotions that I didn't know barely that they would exist in me. So they, in a way, created emotions in me. And I thought, is, is, is Murakami doing this to me? Is Gunter Gras doing this to me? Uh, and that's, very, that's a very, that's something. And then I thought, I want to do it too. If, it's, if it is so good, then it's worth redoing it, doing it yourself too. And I started writing those things because out of pure joy to thank the novel for giving me, giving me that joy, to in a way go into competition with it. And I think that's one of the, the secrets I wanted to tell you. That's, I think the thing why I like writing novels, like, one way or another this book's going to, to do something with other people, and this, 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 of course it makes me feel less lonely writing it, but this makes me also like, gives energy, gives pulse to the writing. Uh, Abdelkader uh, spoke about uh, identities, multi-identities in the West or in Dutch. Uh, but uh, he spoke uh, too about uh, uh, his uh, Berber origin. Uh, I asked uh, him about how he, how uh, he can compose or collect uh, uh, 
Berbarian and Arabic uh, and uh, Dutch uh, identities. You, you, you want to know how? Yeah. How, I don't know. And, uh, how, how, yeah, how, and how can you write uh, these uh, things in your uh, fiction? I don't know. You don't know? No. I just try to do it. And uh, sometimes it works out well and sometimes I, I feel miserably. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a very... It's, 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 uh, I always... I mean, when I started writing, I was. I said, "Why should I? Why should I write a book? I mean, why should I tell the story of my of of, of my family? Uh, why, why do I engage in this kind of activity? It almost sounds like a criminal act, but <laughs> but I thought I said because you're the only one who can do it. You cannot leave it. You cannot. You cannot leave the job to somebody else. So, which also means that, that when the books come out, especially the Netherlands, where I'm published, I write in Dutch." I always get questions about uh, what is your identity, what is, uh, which, in, in which, which identity wrote this novel. And then I, my, my, my refuge of lost, my uh, uh, last resort, where I go to is, as Jean said, uh, I, I say, well, I wrote, I wrote it as a writer. I wrote the book to amuse myself. I wrote it as a, uh, uh, times called uh, divertment, divertimento. Not to not to prove anything about identities or you know just to write something that, that people can read and enjoy. Yeah. But but I get a lot of questions about this, uh, like I have my Berber background. So a lot of people with Berber background who are very active, they tell me, "Why don't you write a, a book about Berbers?" Uh, but uh, so we're gonna. I'm gonna have to take another question oh. now because we're almost uh-huh. out of time. Yeah. Sorry, it's a very <coughs> interesting discussion. Sorry, there was a, yes. You had. Uh, the, the idealist product of, of literature responding to the events of the past year, the, the great era springing off of, as it was called, and just thinking about that as the discussion went along to sort of what I thought about was the coherence or, or lack thereof of the Arab world, world. And so I guess my question is, does, say, a, a work of literature, a novel about the revolution in Libya, for example, uh, make sense for people in Syria? Does it have to? Mm-hmm. No, I think I think that's a very good Did you, point. I don't know if everybody uh, heard that question. Did you hear that? Yeah. Okay. I think I think it's a very good point. I think we assume a lot about, um, you know, in we assume what these countries share or what what is shared in the historical moment. You know, um, there are very profound things that are shared, and you can see only from the evidence of the journalism that it's um, that people in Libya have found. Um, you know, great worth in reading journalism um, in Syria uh, or in Egypt, and vice versa. So there's been um, there's been a need to have that conversation, and there's also this uh, something that uh, I felt certainly um, when I went uh, back to Egypt, which is a country that I've lived uh, off and on uh, for for many many years. It's a country I've known for a long time. Um, and uh, but it, uh, after the revolutions, I felt a very new sense there. I felt a kind of closeness uh, with Egyptians that I didn't feel before the revolution. So, and uh, it seemed to me clear that at that moment, that one of the many terrible things that these people were doing, these dictators, were that they were dividing um, uh, neighbors and 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 brothers. Um, 
uh, from one another and creating a great sense of suspicion and you know so uh, this new uh, feeling of solidarity and, and camaraderie I'm sure is inspired also by the extraordinary um, events that will be forgotten eventually you know so I don't know to what extent this will continue but um, but I, but but it is uh, unique and very inspiring how it would uh, translate into 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 uh, into fiction um, I'm not sure, but suddenly, you know, it's become clear to a lot of us that there's something that we haven't been doing for a long time, which is writing about one another. So we don't think twice of a Norwegian going to, to, uh, to uh, Morocco to write a book about Morocco. And we buy the book and we read it. <laughs> okay? And it's, it's, it, we should. Why not? Uh, but if a Libyan were to go to Morocco to write a book about Morocco, that's a bit suspicious. What are you doing here? <laughs> you know? Or if a Moroccan were to go to Egypt and write a book, what is a Moroccan? What does a Moroccan know about Egypt? But if a French man came to Egypt to write a book, he's, he's French. He's, yeah, he must know something. So, so, so this this kind of you know suspicion that existed before somehow now is opening up, and and uh, people in the area want to write about one another. I, I don't know this window, you know, this beautiful window, if it is going to last for a long time. I suppose the, you know, it's our job to try to make it last for a long time. Um, but yeah, that's more observations than an answer to your question. We're going to have to end, end there. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion. Very enjoyable as well. I'd like to thank Abdul Qadir Ben Ali and Hisham Matar. Thank all of you for your questions. UCL for hosting tonight. There is a reception um, now in South Coast, I don't know where that is, but can I, can I sorry, just just to say that um, uh, yeah, you will be taken there and you'll be able to buy their books. You will also be able to buy Index on Censorship, where there is a fantastic essay uh, by Abdul Qadir. And all to find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk.